Welcome to the last episode of Season 1. I'm thrilled to bring you Melbourne-based artistic director of Black Hole Theatre Company, Nancy Black. You are perfectly allowed to fail. Just try something new and take a risk. A trailblazer of puppetry in the digital age and just a beautiful spinner of a good yarn. Join Nancy and I as we talk lockdown puppetry, collaboration and storytelling. Join Nancy and I now here on Talking Sock. Welcome to Talking Sock, your one-stop shop for all things puppetry, arts and practitioners. My name is Pete Davidson and I'm joined today with Nancy Black, Artistic Director of Black Hole Theatre. Nancy joins us today by correspondence. Nancy, thank you for being with us on Talking Sock. It's a pleasure, Peter. Lovely to talk to you. Oh, it is the, the loveliest. Glad to be here. Right? Hey, Nancy, why puppets? <laughs> well... I have been asked that so many times, I, you know, more times than I've had a hot breakfast um, because it wasn't something that I began with. Um, mm. it, I've always worked in theatre in, in various capacities, but never with puppets until Black Hole asked me to direct Caravan for them in 2001 because Catherine Barry, who was going to be directing it for them, had to drop out and I said, oh, yeah, sure. It was for the fringe. And, um, but I'd never done any puppetry. Oh, my God. This was something that Paul Newcomb had designed and written. And they, with Sue Giles and Rod Primrose and Daryl Cordell, they'd done various bits and pieces in pubs and things around. And I just was mesmerized. It had never occurred to me the, the, the power that puppetry can have to, to provoke things, to, to speak to me in ways that text never does. And I was just absolutely entranced. And that, that was the beginning. And that moment of becoming really engaged by something that isn't spoken. Um, because I tend not to like so much puppets that walk and talk, but things that, that, that where, where puppetry comes in and evokes a response from you that you could not have predicted and that says something to you that you could not have, have articulated. That moment is magic to me. And that's, it's ephemeral. You don't always get it. You, I, 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 as an artist, I can't always create it, although I'm always hoping to. And, and so it's, it's that elusive chase. It's for the chalice. It's <laughs> for the unicorn. Um, it's, it's to create that, that, yeah, that je ne sais quoi, that magic. I've never asked this question before because I've never thought about preference really in terms of puppetry, I kind of just asked that question holistically, but you, you do have a preference for puppets that don't walk and talk in the marionette kind, kind of style. So can you tell me about that preference and, and why you have that preference? Well, it, uh, and also, although I say that I have uh, that preference, I'm not rigorously denying it, but my reason is very simple. I tend to think that if something is walking and talking and it's humanoid, you're better off using an actor. <laughs> okay. um, not that all actors are wonderful. They aren't. And sometimes, you know, a very wooden puppet is better than the, a terrible actor. But because my background is in theater and I have enormous respect for actors and, and for their ability to engage with an audience because I'm constantly looking for how are you going to engage? How are you going to get into someone? And I just think if you've got a puppet that's walking and talking, poof, I don't know why you want to use a puppet that does that. You use, use a live person and you can mix the genres up. You can have puppets on stage with yeah. a live performance. They just don't have to be humans. That's interesting. Hey, and you've also done some really incredible work with Victorian opera. And so I want you to tell me about yeah. the merging of puppets and opera and training 
opera singers to become puppeteers as well. <laughs> well, that's, 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 that's just stretching it a bit far. I wouldn't say they any of them have been trained as puppeteers, but they do do, they, they, they've done some, some puppetry, but it, it's of a pretty basic sort. It has been a great uh, thrill to me to do this. One of the things that I'm really interested in as an artist is beginning to, and it's, it's you know, partly the way performance form, if you like, contemporary performance is going at the moment around the world is mixing art forms. Um, because your audience is so much more open, more informed perhaps than it ever has been. And um, your performers are much more flexible than ever they have been before. And you can begin to explore an idea visually and nuance that whatever that exploration is with, with music. And if someone can sing or it's an opera at the same time, that's fantastic. And you can use spoken text and you can use dance. And there's such a strong link in my mind and in the mind of many other people um, between puppetry and dance, between that impulse to take something through your body and into the puppet um, that you really physically need to be very, very sensitive, very, and, and very immediate in there, which is one of the reasons why it's such a pleasure to work with somebody like Duda, for example. Um, and for me also to work with dancers and bring them into, into puppetry or find people like, you know, Michelle Heaven or Vincent Crowley, for example, both of whom were in my original production of Sleeping Beauty and, and their wonderful physical performance. But they also have an innate understanding of how to become puppeteers out of that. And opera singers, maybe it's, it's just the ones that I've worked with at Vic Opera, but they are so attuned to expression and so eager to find new things. And because it's, I'm never asking them to park and bark. I, I, the way that we're working on Sleeping Beauty, they are members of a community telling a story through puppets. They've loved it. And it's, and we, we've got so many puppets in there and so many hands-on and they're big puppets. So we couldn't possibly do it without them. Wow. But they've loved it. Um, all of this is very rambling and not, not, not exactly explaining what I'm trying to say. But what I want to do is to, I start with an idea and I look at, at what are the themes in there? How are they developed? How are they nuanced? Where is the counterpoint if there is one? How is that going to be visualized? I'm, I'm really looking constantly for visuals, for things that will nuance and take ideas and forms into another dimension, another level. And I'm always looking for that. And sometimes I make mistakes. They are really beautiful visual shows, though. But that's Yeah. It's very exciting to bring these ideas together. The challenge is to not make a salad. The challenge is to be able to bring together different forms, articulate the nuances that those forms bring to a piece, but still keep the central theme the central ideas going forward. That's, that, that's one of the challenges facing me as a director. So what I think is a common misconception about black hole theater is that it doesn't actually correlate with your name. You were invited by the theater in 2001 to, to do 
caravan. <laughs> but t- tell us of the origins of Black Hole and your beginnings with it. Right. Tell us a little bit more about Caravan, I think, because that's a really important show. Um, but, yeah, and if Caravan is your uh-huh. start in puppetry, right. where did theatre and directing all start for you? When I was a child. But I trained as an actor first in the U.S. and then I fell in love with an Australian and came here in 1970 and thought, oh, maybe, (laughs) you know, it it was a big change to come to Australia in 1970. You have no idea how different the country was then. And I didn't know what I was going to be doing. I wanted to make my life here with with my partner, Carillo Gantner, and I knew that. But anyway, I ended up working, we were living in Sydney, and I ended up working at the Nimrod for a while as company manager. And then I came down to, we moved down to Melbourne, and Carillo was working at the MTC, and I trained as a voice teacher with Rowena Belos and started teaching voice, but I was also doing a lot of performing as an actor at La Mama and on in co-ops and everything. I became uh, a founding member of a company called Going Through Stages with renowned director, Peter King, that was one of the most avant-garde and groundbreaking companies in the country. We did very, very strange pieces that were Wonderful, wonderful and exciting. And then I started direct, I taught at the VCA for years because I, I, by then Creo and I were, were divorced and I had three children and I was a single mom. I needed to support myself and I wasn't going to do that as an actor at La Mama. <laughs> but anyway, so, you know, I, I, I was, I was surviving. I was, I was doing whatever you had to do. And teaching and, you know, working on, on film shoots and doing this and doing that and buff. And then in 2001, yeah, Catherine said, Nancy, can you come in and, and take over? Because I can't do this production. I've got something else I have to do. And I said, sure. And that kind of was that. But Black Hole had been started in 1993 by three former members of Handspan, Cliff Dolliver, Rod Primrose, and Paul Newcomb. And they were and are visual artists. They were all, they're they're all painters, but also puppeteers. And Cliff had uh, brought together a show called And the Ass Saw the Angels, which made a big splash that Ariette, um, Taylor directed at what was then until then was Napier Street and now is Ballet Company in South Melbourne. And they were doing odd things and they were kind of a collective. They were a collective. And like a number of collectives, they fell apart or they started disintegrating. And it, 2001 was kind of the last last hurrah. And they asked me to come in and, and we toured Europe with that show. And Hong Kong and the UK. Yeah, we went all over the place. And Ireland. We had a good time. We had a good time. Wow. I mean, and I could listen to you tell I've that story forever. Various shows and slams and work. <laughs> no, but it was, it was, it was really, they, they, they were, they were great years, you know, and it was also at a time artists coming through, they don't quite understand that everybody had day jobs and, and we, we, it, it was nothing to work for free, to rehearse for nothing. We accepted that then. It's not acceptable now and it shouldn't be. But we did. But we also gave ourselves a lot more freedom. You know, it's very difficult now to to work only when you get the grant and only when you get support. And then the pressure to succeed is crippling. Or it can be. 
And you just don't have the freedom to fail. And I remember once hearing a, a keynote address by Barry Kosky, and Barry knows how to get money from a stone. But one of the things he, he said in this address, and I'll, I'll never forget it, is that you have to fail. You have to take that risk. And that's the only thing that I would say to all of us in puppetry is to keep it going and to keep its power alive. We, we have to go places where, where people are scared to go or where they don't wanna go. And you know, the way puppetry all kind of sank into being just for children for so long and, and it's coming back out again. In part, thank you to Handspring um, with Warhorse, but 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 with other stuff as well. And there's been there've been lots. There are lots of fabulous artists, particularly in Europe, who have never sunk into just doing children's shows so that they could survive. But they're supported in a way that in this country we aren't. You know that we 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 don't have that underlying support for for culture. It, it, not in our society. We give a nod to it. We, we recognize that it is important. Yes, it is important, but so is swimming or, you know, so is footy. And those <laughs> things are important, <laughs> but they're less important here. Culture is less important here than other things. Anyway. Yeah. That's, yeah. Um, yeah. Does, does that give you sort of an idea? Absolutely. Black Hole, I guess, because Black Hole was founded by visual artists and because puppetry is a visual form. That's, mm. that's something for me that I just love. Yeah. yeah. It actually explains a lot of what I've seen of Black Hole. And I, so, I have to admit, I've only seen images. You know, I've only ever, what I've never actually been in Melbourne long enough to watch theatre <laughs> because of the Melbourne lockdown. But um, I am really excited to see what, <laughs> what Black Hole does next. And I'm really interested in your work with Duda Paver and the production Blind. And I think it's a really lovely story. And so I want you to tell me about that collaboration with Duda um, because he is an interesting person. And I think his childhood is incredibly interesting. But that show then also toured Europe, I think, and Charleville. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. We premiered in Charleville. Duda and I first met in, I think it was 2011. And he came out here to do a workshop at the VCA. He was also working with a puppeteer, artist, a theater maker whom I know well called Tamara Roos. And she and I had been working on a show. So we we got Duda in to give us some guidance, comment, third eye. And Duda and I, and Duda, and Duda ended up staying with me. And we really got on very well. He was then invited. And we always said, oh, let's work together sometime. And I said, sure. He was invited to be the guest artist at Charleville in 2014. And when you have that invitation, it means they will support a show for you and you get to invite particular companies that you like from around the world to present their pieces in Charleville. It's a big deal. So Duda suggested um, that he and I work together. And at the time, he thought that what he wanted to do, because Duda loves fairy tales, and he wanted to do a piece about Snow White from the perspective of a dwarf. He came out here in 2011 or 12. These years are all getting blurred uh, <laughs> to do a creative development on it and to also run a workshop. And the fringe was on at the time. And I had a friend who was performing in a show that was a variety of stand-up pieces by people with a disability and it was in the the Spiegel tent in Collingwood which is now next to um, um, Circus Oz and I took Duda to see it and it was just wonderful you know people was passionate and funny and and moving and 
I was just so delighted. And at one point I turned, uh, I was laughing at something and I turned to look at Duda and he was crying. Tears were just going down his face. And I said, dudes, what, what's the matter? What's happening? And he said, this is my family. And I said, what? And he had always had terrible problems with his eyes. And I knew that he always when I saw him, his eyes would be just bright red and rubbing and all the time. And, and his health was up and down. Well, he started describing to me what had happened to him as a child. Oh. Growing up in Brazil uh -huh. uh, with this very strange disease where he wanted his eyes were he was in so much pain um, that he wanted to scratch his eyes out. Gosh. And oh he would have these pustules um, emerging out of his body that he would scratch and scratch and scratch until they bled. Doctors um, didn't know really what was wrong. His mother hauled him around from one Western doctor to another, then despaired of Western medicine. And um, Brazil has a very deep history with animism and different kinds of shamanic practices, particularly with a group called the Yoruba. And um, so she started taking Duda around to some shamans who suggested other wonderful things for him to do, one of which was that he was to pretend he was dead and be in a coffin dressed in white, covered with rose petals, and be paraded through the streets of their little town with people singing and saying prayers and everything to convince the devil that he had in fact died. Whoa. So needless to say, surprise, surprise, that didn't work. So <laughs> then she took him to, I mean, I think they, they went to many, many, but one of the other more barbaric um, solutions or attempts was to, have him in a paddock at dawn and open up his eyes with your fingers quite wide to receive the first rays of the sun and squeeze the juice of a lemon into the eye, followed by a teaspoon of honey. Oh my God. That <laughs> it is so very horrific. funny when he describes that. He says, so I was a salad dressing. <laughs> But anyway, and then, you know, his, none, none of this worked, none of it worked. And he was bullied at school and um, had to spend years, as I said, living in darkness. And he was effectively, effectively blind. And then I just thought, my God, Duda, <laughs> let's, just, let's forget Sleeping Beauty. We're going to make a piece about this. So... We then began a long series of developments that took place here in the Netherlands where Duda lives in Amsterdam, um, in France, in Norway, all over the place. And over a period of two years, we, um, we made this piece that then premiered at Charleville in 2015. And after that, since then, it's toured all over Europe and Scandinavia and gone to Russia. And he came here too at, to Theatre Works. And the piece has just gotten better and better. And one of the reasons why I was and why Duda was, was willing to make that with me in that form and about that subject was because my first child was severely, severely disabled. She's no longer alive. But some of the experiences that he had told me about resonated with me deeply. And so for both of us, it was, it was, it was a piece that was about ourselves, but we didn't want it to be biographical. And we also didn't want it to be a piece that was going to teach the audience anything. 
it was, we wanted it to be a metaphor, a metaphor about disability and resilience and coming through the other end. And we wanted to, to make a piece that people without, without explaining things and the big oracle, the, the woman in it drew heavily on the, the shamans that Duda had visited as a child. And um, they are duplicitous and greedy and manipulative. And it, it was just, it was amazing. And we did a lot of research with a Yoruba musicologist, a, a man who is Brazilian and has studied deeply with the whole culture of the Yoruba people. And he talked to us a lot about what we were doing and the music that we were using and the songs that we were singing. And Duda, I discovered, I didn't know, has a beautiful singing voice and we could use it in the piece. And it was, that was great. So it was, it was a really long drawn out intense period of development that was that was very difficult and done remotely as well I imagine through through conferencing over two countries or was it all done in the one place I mean if it was two years oh um, no it was we we we, I I I traveled around and Duda came here to make it it wasn't something we we didn't have zoom then and certainly it's not the sort of piece that you could make on zoom I don't think how would you describe the form of puppetry that he uses and manipulates in, in that piece? Because his puppetry overall is almost like a, a sort of an, another body on himself and that kind of becomes a part of his dance. But then in this particular piece, it was a lot about, it became about deformity and sort of that kind of, it almost looked bouffant in, in yes. the way it was done. I, I really want you to comment on what kind of puppetry you describe that as. Well, Duda loves working with foam puppets and he works on, you know, they are sort of body puppets, but not um, because he's constantly, he's working with it with when the puppet comes is part of you. And then when it separates and who is driving any, any moment in, in a piece. And because he is a dancer and believes deeply in the connection between puppetry and dance, we're constantly looking for the physical moment when when your impulse goes from your body into the puppet and then something comes back too. And I don't know that there's a name for that kind of puppet. No, but isn't that but, exciting? Yeah. <laughs> that there isn't a name. I love that. That's, yeah, that's, that's when it becomes innovative and inventive and new and that's, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And then let's let's fast forward to a time where we do have Zoom. Um, and in 2020, you did um, what many theatre companies do and had to do to reinvent how you produce. And I know two puppeteers, Danny Miller and Jemima Eva, who performed in your 567 Create series with Mooney Valley Council. And I loved watching them. So now we have Black Hole teaching puppetry to children and their families. And it kind of felt like puppetry play school. And I really liked yeah. the format of it. So how else did Black Hole adapt last year and where does that place it now in in 2021 moving forward? Well, we have a couple of projects that are also digital. I began to look at how could we do things digitally but also have something that could then adjust or adapt or how could we adapt what we would normally do face-to-face. So... One of the first things we did was because literally on a Monday, I was going into the Mooney Valley rehearsal studio to begin work on a children's piece called The Last Lighthouse Keeper. And I was, the door was locked and I was standing on the street and the women, the cultural officers came up to me. They had just come in to go to work and they said, it's all off. It's all not Uh, going to happen. mm. And I just went, you know, ding, 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 ding. And I said, right, okay. So what we will do instead is run an online workshop for you. 
<laughs> a series of them. <laughs> and they said, fine. And, uh, you know, and I just didn't, I didn't charge enough money and or in, in none of that. It's, it all just happened very fast. And I wanted to make a piece that it's, it's interesting you picked up on play school because I wasn't using that as a format exactly, but I wanted something that would be encouraging kids to use puppets in their play. How That there was not one single thing that they needed to do, but that they could make something out of anything and then open their imaginations and go for it. And that's what I wanted to to get them to do. So we just, we stitched those together very fast and shot them very fast. And then I also, you know, we went into much stricter lockdown and I was really concerned about people not, not working. First of all, there's huge economic problems there, of course, but more importantly, it seemed to me was, or equally important was the whole emotional desert that we were in. Absolutely. Uh, Loneliness and, and you, you know, your value has disappeared because you can no longer perform Mm -hmm. because you can no longer create. So I thought, okay, let's look at what we can make. And I came up with this idea of doing a, not a diary, uh, because so many people were doing that, but to to work with a number of different artists across the state and get them to respond to the pandemic in visual ways. And they're, they're all people who've had connections with puppetry, except for the cinematographer and the sound designer. And we thought we were going to be able to shoot it in maybe August, September. And of course we were in deep dark lockdown then. So that wasn't going to happen. But what happened was that because we didn't have a narrative and I wanted everybody to be feeling like this was theirs and have ownership of it. So we met once a week on Zoom on a Wednesday night and talked about our ideas and none of them knew each other. I I knew all of them but they didn't, except in a couple of cases, they didn't know one another. So a new community began of people. And we talked about this, about this project, but we also talked about how we were feeling and when things got dark, as they did for a lot of people, we had a group that were completely accepting of that. And- You created a community. Share, yeah, and you could share whatever you wanted with them. and. It, it was a really, really lovely, lovely time. And then we got to shoot in November. And we shot very fast over a three-week period. And that was great. And now I'm editing it. And Takeshi, Takeshi and I are editing. Takeshi Kondo is our cinematographer and editor. And the people have come up with the most bizarre ideas. <laughs> but... They are beautiful also and yeah. and funny and and deeply moving and, and creepy. So yeah, I'm not certain you'll see it, but I've just oh, I don't know oh, what I it's gonna so. be like. It's funny though, because Melbourne Fringe for me this year really brought out the crazy and us yeah. from what I've seen at, you know, Jude Pearl and another a couple of other acts that I remember from Melbourne Fringe this year, which was all online. Yeah. It, it was most of the content was about lockdown and about that crazy way of looking at things from a different angle subject matter. Mm-hmm. But it was deeply moving and 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 it resonated with us because we as the audience also have gone through. It's funny because you know, rarely can, rarely can we go through the same thing that an artist has gone through and understand it completely. You know, mm-hmm. we can we can we can think of similar experiences that we've been through, but in Melbourne in particular, we went through exactly the same thing together at the same time yeah. in the same moment, and then had to create from that. Yeah. Um, I really hope we do see it. I think, yeah, embrace you the bizarro. Oh no, you will. I have to finish it. We got a little grant. We got ten thousand dollars. Went nowhere from Osco, and 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 we really. I, we have to finish it. And for me, we have to finish it. And for all of us, we have to finish it. Yes. But 
I wanted them to also find out one of the reasons why I wanted to do it was because, you know, puppeteers, some of them had had some experience on television, but mostly people are used to working live Mm. and Mm -hmm. bouncing off audiences and doing the thing that live performance does so well, which is connect us with someone in a moment. And that moment is unique. It, because it will never have the same exact thing again. And I wanted people to have an experience of working with a camera, of working to the frame and seeing what they could come up with. And wow, <laughs> I think they just were astonishing. And that's been a great thing for them. It's a lot of them are now uh, like Danny is is going, he's done a whole series of absolutely hilarious stop motion things they're just wonderful oh i can't wait he's gonna do a whole lot of it he'd never done it he's amazing he can make anything batman he can i just he's just an incredible creative talent and he's just up there in rosebud and we love you danny (laughs) and we really yeah uh, we admire his creativity but he and 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 you know some of the others they've never worked this way for this purpose. So it was a big challenge. And I think they hope, no, I know that they all felt extended by it and valued. And, and that's a, that, that was a great thing. Then I've been working with some first nations projects over the last few years. And I get very frustrated because I'm quite eager to have First Nations performers in our work um, and they need to, you know, it would be good if they could be trained as puppeteers. Most of them, all, not, there's only one who's really been trained in this country and that's Jacob Bohm. And so I, I got hold of Jacob and I said, Jake, now listen, I get so frustrated with this lack of training and you and I both know this is you know this could be a wonderful pathway for indigenous performers and he said absolutely and he went on this rant about its connection to culture and the use of objects in ceremony and in other ways so we are now putting together a series of workshops for first nations performers Oh my God. Yes. Amazing. And I'm really very excited about that. And that, and Jake who came through the VCA school of puppetry wanted the, the people whom he had worked with who were so good, Peter Wilson, Philip Miller, Gilly McInnes, and of course, Richard Bradshaw. Yes. And um, so that's, that's coming out of this and we're going to do it remotely. So we'll do it over Zoom so that artists from Broom, for example, Mari Lowry yes. wants some writers that she is working with to, to be able to access this and to work with Gilly and other people in Broom or in Brisbane or up in the, you know, way far away, up in Cairns, wherever. And we're going to contact all the different art centers to see if they can encourage and support artists doing this. And they're for free. So artists are not going to have to, to pay for it. So that's, that's another thing that we're doing that's digital. I'm also working on Last Lighthouse Keeper will have a show later in the year. But I really also want to shoot it beautifully not just with me behind a camera on a tripod but get somebody really get a multi-camera shoot out of it and tell me really, more about that project because the light la, the lighthouse keeper is on your website and the puppetry is a really beautiful simple form of puppetry they almost look like they're sculptures um yeah. you, is it a video formatted show or is it going to be a performance or will it be both tell me about that no project. it's well i think it should be both that but it can only be both if we get it really beautifully shot. And it has a very, it, the puppets in the set were designed by Hamish Fletcher, who is 
I've worked with a lot and I just have the most profound respect for him. And it all moves. And he's designed the main set piece is, is the wave that looks like a famous Japanese wave by... Hokusai. Uh, yes. Yes. And, um, and it's, it's about... It's a piece for young school children. And we've done a, a developmental tour, if you like, of the Fitzroy libraries. And they are, uh, the, the school children just loved it. And we, we, it doesn't have any dialogue in it. So it's, it's just, it's about death and loss and resilience and the power of friendship. And it's just so um, necessary, hey, at this time of year. And it's so, so, and it's really beautiful. And the kids, we, we, we were performing with two schools that have a large population of disadvantaged and refugee children. And I wasn't sure. I wanted, I was really curious to see how they'd respond. They got it. And, you know, some of them, were, would cry at, at the sad bits, but they were with it all the way. And they, when we, and we always followed each performance with a discussion and the kids got to handle the puppets and things like that. And they just loved that. And, um, but they, th their questions were so, so intelligent and, and they understood the themes of it. And the teachers just thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. They loved it. So we're, we, it, it needs some work and Danny's going to be in it. Um, oh, great. Oh, wow. It just sounds like you're so doing so many great. amazing things. And then um, I'm also running this project called Spin a Yarn that's sort of a slow burner. And what that is is that we are offering to communities, can be a group of people, could be, um, in one case, it's just an individual, it could be a family, could be a group of kids, um, schools, to give us a story. And I will pair them with an artist, a, puppet a puppetry artist, and we will make a little five-minute puppet piece out of their story together with them, collaborating with them on the style and what happens and what the story is. And we'll shoot it and give it to them as a video that they can have forever. And it, the story is theirs and they have become artists in making this piece. So wow, that is... <laughs> that, girl, you're busy. <laughs> You're busy. Um, yeah. that, there is just so much that you are doing for the community for, for in, in all facets. And it sounds like you've really switched to digital as well, which is a really cool thing to hear. Um, hey, we're going to go to break. So you are listening to Talking Sock with One Orange Sock and Nancy Black of Black Hole Theatre. We'll be right back after the break. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow at One Orange Sock Productions on Instagram. More with Nancy in just a minute. Want to start a conversation at your next gig or festival? Then grab your wallets because we've got merch. Head to our Redbubble store to get your hands on some signature One Orange Sock designs. We believe that podcasts should be advert free. So if you like what you're listening to, there's a new way to help support our podcast. No monthly subscriptions, just a simple tip to share your kindness and to help us get by. Follow the link in the podcast notes or at oneorangesock.com to buy us a coffee. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Talking Sock. Welcome back. You are listening to Talking Sock with Pete Davidson and Nancy Black. Now, Nancy, you know a thing or two about Puppet Slams. <laughs> From 2011, you have produced like, what, 10, 11 of these slams? Yep. And I guess the question I wanted to ask you is in the age of social and digital media, does the Puppet Slam still have legs and will there be more? Look, it doesn't. It's not a COVID safe kind of production. So, you know, we could do a little one and then the puppet slam doesn't have to be big. But I would think there probably will be 
more slams. They they take a huge amount of organizing, strangely enough. And and because I like being able to pay the puppeteers and I want to keep the ticket prices low. And I've always provided free grog. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you do it. A bit to eat. Um, uh, So it it was not a money earning proposition for us. And my board got a little cranky about that. So, but what I would, I loved about them. And the reason why I did them was to, we did almost all of them in non-theater spaces in cafes, on the streets, um, in an art gallery in in Sydney, in in church halls. Um, And I really wanted to introduce the puppeteers to different ideas artistically. So, for example, I would do one, I did one that we did at the Northcote Town Hall about opera or we called it aria. And what I did was ask the puppeteers to listen to some opera music and some arias and come up with one and make a puppet piece with that as as the music for it. And I also invited some opera singers I knew through the Vic Opera to join us just to sing in between puppet pieces and or a couple of them accompanied pieces live and it was wonderful unreal it was just fabulous and another one I paired puppeteers up with a poet so they made with contemporary poets the idea was that puppeteers would look outside our narrow little field for inspiration and other people would be introduced to the art of puppetry because these slams were not for children. They were adult things. And I also said to everybody, this is not to be polished. You are perfectly allowed to fail. Just try something new and take a risk. And so they did. How did I get on one of They always sold out. They always sold out. Because you've got that beautiful merging. How do how do we get onto one of these? Like, uh, how do we could we do this digitally? Do you think? Yes, of course you could do a digital slam. You know, I I could come up with an idea, some cross cultural thing, and you know, the, the the thing that occurs to me immediately is to say, let's make something about fire. Oh yeah, and we will do it visually and shoot it. And I would organize a, a really good cinema artist to wow. um, a video artist to shoot to shoot that. It would take it, it's a bit like Revolve, only each piece would be distinct and separate. But you we seem could do to it. be, yeah, we Just could do not. it. I mean, yeah, it fire is such a, a haunting word for us now, based on what happened in the I last know. year. But it, sure. you've got these ideas that definitely come from your experience and from an out experience, don't you? And mm-hmm. I wish I could draw from things and draw so quickly the way that you do. It's really quite a. I, I admire watching you have these ideas just in real time. What mm-hmm. do you look for in a story that you want to bring to the stage? I always have a penchant for stories that explore the dark underside of human life. But I'm also, I've discovered what a force laughter is. And I guess what I look for in stories are polarities, nuance, depth, a willingness to go beyond what is predictable. Like when I, when the Vic Opera asked me to direct Sleeping Beauty, I thought, oh, it's just a fairy tale. Why? I'm, I'm just not going to do this very well. And then I went into it and discovered that it wasn't just a fairy tale. And and that that story became a very powerful one for me that was both about grief and loss and also about resilience and recovery and love and going on. And it was both very sad and very funny. So that's when I say, if, if I'm looking at a story, I want those kinds of 
energizing poles in it. And when you're making work, which is a whole different thing, you look for for those sorts of, I mean, even when I make non-narrative pieces, I'm looking to build in nuance. And I sometimes say to myself, you're building something along a sonata form where you introduce a theme and then, then you develop it and then you ornament it or then you diversify it and you counterpoint it and you, you build nuances and then you have to bring everything together in the end and find a resolution, even if it's not a narrative. And yeah. that comes from emotional threads. It will come visually. It will, it will use a lot of different possibilities. And I always thought, oh, I don't want to make work for children. But of course, now I am been making work for children. <laughs> and I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So. And they're a very difficult audience to, to I, I think it was Cam Ralph in one of my earlier episodes said that a child audience is brutal. And to make theatre yeah. work for a child audience when they just don't get up and walk away is actually yeah. really respectful yeah. like we respect people who can do that let me praise it to you this way though what is your favorite kind of story a story that reveals something about human nature that i wouldn't have thought that i could not have predicted or that i didn't think up myself that takes me into an unknown garden Gotcha. Beautifully poetic. What about um, the toolkit? You know, you're you're a director and we've only had a few directors on this show. And by working with puppeteers as you do, I wonder if you have uh, a preferred toolkit that those puppeteers draw from, or how do you draw out from them the the tools that they need to tell the stories that you want to tell? I, I, I work quite collaboratively. So, and I like working with artists who, make offers to me and I shape them and make a counter offer or we we discuss what a piece is and what it needs at any given moment and then we explore different things that we can bring in to express that thing that we've both agreed on. I've got a long, long background in normal theatre and I know Puppeteers like to say, oh, but I'm not an actor. I hide behind the puppet. But actually, you have to have yeah. an actor's instinct. Yeah. And you have to have an actor's timing. And you have to understand when you're transiting from anger into joy, into, into love, into, into sorrow, you have to know what those transitions are. And you have to flow that into your puppet, whatever form it is. Now, see, that's so, part of a toolkit. That's that's a, that's that's what I my responsibility is to give them those those moments and to understand yeah. what those moments are about. Right. So, wow. That's fascinating, Nancy. It is, and it's it's wonderful to hear that you will take take what you have and, and take offers and then receive and create a dialogue between actor and uh, and puppeteer and and director. And you're someone who's contributing to contemporary puppetry in Australia today so holistically, I think. How would you describe contemporary Australian puppetry? In this whole series, I've been trying to understand what Australian contemporary puppetry looks like. And um, I get the voices of different people to understand who that is. What does Australian puppetry have? What does it need to thrive and continue to reemerge? I've always thought that it needs to find its place alongside dance and physical theatre and text-based theatre, it needs to find its niche in contemporary performance. I believe that puppeteers now need to be able to draw on so many other, and, and, and just dancers now need to talk. Opera singers need to know how to act, and most of them do, and a lot of them need um, of what actors of whatever sort need to be able to have physical skills. And we all need to be able to respond to the world politically and socially and have some uh, fluency in those ideas and 
the tools, the, your human tools that you need to build that into your work. And I think Australian puppetry, I think, is still crawling out from being something that is seen as a children's art form. Mm -hmm. okay. And I think it's getting there. But, yeah, it's still largely seen as something for children. I don't think there's any particular flavor that mm -hmm. says, oh, yes, this could only have come from Australia. Though I think we're very, we're much more accepting about flaws and imperfection than, say, the Europeans are. That's, that's true. I, I hear that constantly from dancers as well. I just think that we, that more and more Australian puppetry is looking at cross art form work and incorporating other forms of theater. And I think that's necessary and that's very healthy. In the 2019 Charleville Festival, whoa, there was so much cross art form and political work and so much more physical, very, very physical work. I think it's, it's a, an evolution that everybody is going, going into. And it's, it's necessary. The, the art forms are all, culture is, is becoming not separated out into very distinct categories. And you go to this theater just to see dance or just to see text-based theater. Things are moving around. You know, I've never thought of it like that, this merging of disciplines, I guess, in performance. But I love where that takes us, where that takes us to how we see creatives. And if you're trained in one particular thing, but you want to go and work in another thing, that that gives you the opportunity and the space to do so. For me, that's quite freeing, I think. I think that's uh -huh. a really lovely kind of idea. Nancy, I guess you've been doing this a while. You know, this is the thing that you've been doing for a while. What do you think, looking back, what do you think is your favourite piece of work or the best thing that you've learned from your journey in puppetry and directing? Oh, goodness. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, you know, everything that I've done, I always think could have been done better. So <laughs> I, I, I've, I've loved almost all of the work that I've done. I haven't loved everything, but I, I like it because I always learn something. Each piece teaches me enormously about the world, about how to work with people, about my frailties. Um, sometimes I, I, I find out about my strengths as well. I've seen some remarkable work done overseas that sort of stands with me. I saw a piece in 2019 by a Belgian company called um, the Compagnie Moussou Bonté. They made a piece about Goya. It was about war. Wow. With no language, no text at all. And it was so powerful and moving and it was painterly, but very, 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 very much puppetry. And it was as passionate as Goya's paintings are. And it was just extraordinary. And I thought, oh my God, I would love to go work with this, these people and learn and learn. I, I, I would just sit there and, I would make coffee for them. I would, I would just just to be sit in their rehearsals and see how they got there. I also saw a remarkable, completely different piece that was made by um, an artist called um, Belova Giacobelli, and um, it was called Chaika, and it was <gasps> Natasha Belova. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. fantastic! Um, and it was a piece with a body puppet, you know, a head, the puppeteer stood behind the the puppet. And the idea was, was that the puppet was a famous actress who was coming to do a production of Cherry Orchard, Chekhov's Cherry Orchard. Yeah. But she has dementia. That's it. I loved and the, the video of that was incredible. 
it was it was just amazing. It was amazing. And yet, you know, at, at the same time, it was a piece that was so exquisitely done and it could have been terrible. It was also, I'm going to just qualify my praise for it to say it was quite safe because the audience all knew, you know, it, it, she kept performing all her roles from all the Chekhov plays that she had done. And she was very temperamental. But but you knew, so you, you, what, what we were led on a journey back to our favorite plays, our favorite text-based plays. Almost from the actress in The Seagull, who is sort of that famous character and it, it, it lovely, reflective kind of work. That, yeah. yeah, totally, totally. And then at the same time, in the same festival, I saw an extraordinary piece that didn't really use very much puppetry, but it had been partly directed by one of my heroes, who is a woman called Agnes Limbos, which is a Belgian, Gas Central. It was a piece about, and I can't remember what they were called. They were Jews in the concentration camp who had to be, their role was to choose who was going to be um, gassed and who Gosh. was going to survive. Wow. And it was, you know, just, just visually, it was extraordinary. It was on this huge block and it was very, very powerful and very dark. It was, there was not a lot of comedy in it. There's a woman called Giselle Vienne, who is, I think she's Austrian. And she makes very contemporary work that uses, that mixes up sort of installation work with puppetry and with text. And she's very, very extraordinary. And William Kentridge, of course. Mm, absolutely. Hey, you've, you've, made, you've raised a question for me here, and that is that you're talking about several different examples of European puppetry that is political, or if not political, definitely speaking about something of substance. And I wonder if in Western, meaning sort of more US and Australian puppetry, does it need to become more serious or political? I mean, earlier before we started the episode, you were speaking to me about what we're reeling from, which is an assault on the US Capitol. And then previously, you also mentioned to me a Charleville season in which France was reeling from Charlie Hebdo. And mm. so in, in its own nature, puppetry became political. Do you think mm. Australian puppetry needs to become more political and how could it do so? Well, it could. It's just a question of whether puppeteers want to go down that alley. And also it's like, do you do political shows for children when most of our puppeteers are working with children? Or do you use puppetry in a political way when you're making shows about adults, which is what I would do. Absolutely, um, yeah, same. You know, not certainly not all of the Charleville work was political, but a lot of it was, and much more so than it had been in the past. I think there's quite a lot of political work going on in the States, but we don't necessarily see it. We, 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 it doesn't come here. And there's a, you know, you have to read the Henson Foundation's list of all the stuff that's going on and then go see it. And when we did Blind in New York at La Mama, I saw some quite political stuff. And there's an artist called Dan Herlin who makes very political work, but also deeply humanist work. And Bread and Puppet Theatre, which, the best. you know, is... The Boal style. Yeah, yeah. And they are absolutely political. Yeah. William Kentridge is absolutely political. So I think it would be great. I, I, I have no problems with puppetry being political. It could, it's because puppetry is such a metaphorical genre anyway. I've got one last question for you, Nancy. Who are your heroes in puppetry? Is there anyone that you would thank or would tip your hat to from your career or looking back? Well, I've listed some of them already. Um, certainly in this country, you know, Peter Wilson has been a great teacher, the artists and the people who made the early handspan work, they were fantastic. Uh, Richard Bradshaw is a national treasure. There's no question about that. And then when you go overseas, I mean, we've all got to say hello, thank you, you know, to Jim Henson just for so much. 
to William Kentridge to Bread and Puppet Theatre. In the U.S., there's, there's a very famous puppeteer I'm sure you've heard of called Basil Twist. Dan Herlin, I just love from New York. Agnes Limbos from Belgium. Belgium is just great. There's a wonderful Giselle Vienne is just fabulous. Oddly enough, there's a ventriloquist called Michel de Genève. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his last name. But anyway, I, I've seen some of his work and it's absolutely fantastic. It's wonderful. And if you, if you feel like ventriloquism, ugh, howdy doody. No, it's <laughs> not that. The thing is, you know, everybody makes wonderful works and then they make work that's not so wonderful. And then they make another wonderful work. And everybody evolves. Everybody evolves. Yeah. I have a great friend, Stefan um, Joris, who I've brought out here to do an ob- a tour with his object theater. And he was wonderful. And he is a wonderful artist. But he's now given up puppetry and he's just working as a painter and a poet. And people change. Who knows what Natasha Balova is going to do? I guess the difference is that they keep creating and then they keep contributing and that we put something out there into the void and then it gets seen. And if we keep doing that, then that is is the definition of creative expression, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for talking sock with us today. We are out of time. You can find Nancy at blackholetheatre.com. Thanks for listening with us today. Make sure you subscribe for great puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. This is the last talking sock of season one, but we will be back on March 21, 2021. Gosh, that's a mouthful. With Talking Sock International season two. So I've been Pete Davidson, that puppet guy, and we will talk sock again soon. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you, Pete. It was lovely. Just lovely. That's it for season one of Talking Sock. We'll be back on World Puppetry Day 2021 and we'll be reaching out. Join me as I continue to speak with puppetry artists from Australia and abroad in our next season, Talking Sock International. Thank you for following us in 2020 and for supporting our first One Orange Sock production. See you soon, back here on Talking Sock. Talking Sock.